I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, we are going to be covering chapter 12 today. Uh, John chapter 12. You know, sometimes, and we've got a lot of experience with this in the last couple of weeks, uh, sometimes a storm will surprise us and arrive um, with, without any warning, but other times we see the clouds gathering. We see the clouds gathering, we hear the, the thunder rumbling, but you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to rain right where you are. The thing that kind of always gives it away for me is that smell, that rain smell that you get on the air. That's the time that you know that it's probably going to rain. I would say that for those that were following Jesus, his disciples and his closest friends, I believe that as we enter into chapter 12, they knew the clouds had gathered and they knew the thunder was rumbling. And maybe once he triumphantly entered into Jerusalem um, and he did not do what anybody wanted him to do, I'm sure they knew at that particular point uh, that it was the storm was actually coming. So the, the miracle um, uh, of Lazarus had been a major step toward that end. It had been kind of one of the things that triggered, you know, all kinds of, I guess you would say, trouble or um, uh, hostility towards Jesus by those that, that maybe had been mostly neutral before. So the Sadducees uh, are the ones that we're thinking about here. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Now Jesus has challenged their very theological beliefs. They had the power of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish Supreme Court. They had um, uh, the, the chief priest at that time was the Sadducees. So they had a lot of power. Uh, and so when Jesus enters into that city at that time, people knew everything was about to change. I, I think even people that had not followed Jesus knew that something was different. Something was happening about this particular time that was different uh, than maybe some of the other people that they had seen rise up. So the sermon in a sentence is this. Jesus has done more than enough to persuade our faith. It is up to us to decide how we will respond. And I believe that's what we're going to see as we read this passage is that Jesus had done plenty to show who he was. He had taught enough and he had worked enough signs. He had done everything that he needed to do to show who he was. It was now up to the people to decide how they would accept him or how they would reject him. And so that, that is on them and I believe that it is on us as well to decide what we will do with Jesus. So I want to read you this, this chapter, uh, John chapter 12. And, um, and then we'll kind of, we'll, uh, we'll go through it. So it says, six days before the Passover, uh, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of, the, uh, one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you. But you do not always have me. When the large crowd of, of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. 
The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, carrying, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who, came, who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves this life loses it. And whoever hates this life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then, a voice from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so, so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The Lord who has, Lord, who has believed, what he has heard from us, and whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Therefore, they could not believe. Again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, Many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. 
And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world uh, as light, so that whoever believes in, in me may not remain in darkness. Anyone, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has, given, has himself given me a commandment that to say, uh, or what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment, or that his commandment, is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Now, um, as we get into this, um, one thing that I'm going to go ahead and, and, and mention is, is that this dinner with uh, Martha and Mary and Lazarus and, and what Judas says and all that, um, it's actually recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, um, and, and it, and it is, is recorded as being on the Tuesday of Passion Week. Um, John was never really interested in putting things in chronological order, uh, so we're actually going to save that story, that part of the passage, to the very end so that we can, um, so that we can look at it um, the way that probably it actually occurred. Um, we are in the very last week of Jesus' ministry. He likely came into Bethany uh, on a Friday afternoon before Passion Week, and he probably stayed with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so if you're keeping up with Sabbaths and things like that, if Jesus and his disciples arrived on Friday afternoon, there would have been maybe a little bit of time, but then it would be getting dark, and that begins the Sabbath. And so they probably spent a pretty quiet Sabbath with this beloved family, uh, and, and on that day, probably that wasn't the day that the crowds, crowds found out that Jesus was there, so it probably was a little bit quiet. They were able to spend some time together, and this also would have been a time for rejoicing because it was the first time probably that Jesus had came back and visited since he had risen Lazarus from the dead. So, you know, if something really just mind-boggling happens, you can't respond right away. But it had been a couple of months, and so by that time, they were able to truly appreciate what Jesus had done and be able to give him thanks um, for what, what had happened with Lazarus uh, th that time when he was in the tomb. Um, so, again, John's not really committed to telling things chronologically in order, and so we're actually going to save that to the end. Um, but it seems like sometime maybe on the Sabbath or very early on that Sunday morning is when people found out that Jesus was in Bethany. And so that's when the crowds come to him. And so the picture that we get is actually, just to kind of summarize the big picture, crowds come from Jerusalem to Bethany. They want to see Jesus. They want to see Lazarus. As Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem, sometime in the middle of that is, is when you know, he's on the donkey. They're laying down the palm branches. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees watching this and realizing that this probably isn't the opportune time to arrest him. So those are the kinds of things that are happening. And that's kind of the sequence and order that it's going in. Um, one thing we do see in, in John's gospel that we don't actually read in some of the others is the plot to kill Lazarus. Now, we don't know how this ends. Um, we don't know if Lazarus is killed by the, the, the Jews. Uh, we don't know if, if, if he survived because they felt like they had won with, by crucifying Jesus. But what we do know is there was a plot, there was a plan to kill Lazarus. And the reason is he was a persistent living, breathing example of the power of Jesus Christ and his position as the Christ. Lazarus was a testimony 
to Jesus. And because of that, they needed to kill him, or they felt like they needed to kill him. And boy, if there's anything that we could write on our tombstones that would be true, wouldn't it be cool that we could say on our tombstones, they had to kill me because I was a testimony to Jesus. And so if Lazarus was killed for that reason, that seems like a very sad and, and, and wasteful way for a life like that to end, considering what Jesus had done. But what could have been written on that man's headstone is pretty amazing. So John, by the time John's writing, the, the story of Jesus' last week was well known among all Christians. And so he doesn't have to go into the details, and, and it doesn't create any kind of contradiction. You know, there's a lot to the story of the donkey, for example, of, of how Jesus sent disciples to acquire the donkey, and, and, and the, the words that were said, very specific words, and these fulfill prophecies as well. Um, John doesn't tell all of that in his story. He just says that he found a donkey, and he began to ride in on it. And he mentions that the disciples didn't understand this, or at least they didn't relate it to the prophecies about that at first, but later they remembered it. Um, but the one thing that we need to remember is that this was a fulfillment of prophecy because Jesus is entering the city peacefully. So Jesus came into the city as a king in peace time because he came to save, uh, not to judge. And so when we look at this, a king that came in riding on a horse was a king that was on the warpath. That was just the symbol, you know. But a king that came in riding on a donkey, nobody rides donkeys into war. They're too stubborn. They won't go. And so that was a show that he was certainly here for peace. He did not come to bring the sword at that time. He did not come to bring judgment. At that particular time, he was coming to save. Now, this puts in stark contrast the fact that the, you know, the, the, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and all those folks pretty much had you know, an open arrest warrant. You know, he comes in peace, but we're coming to get him and bring him into uh, prison. So that's kind of an interesting thing. So some people have asked, how many people would have been here? Like, how, how, how big of a crowd are we talking? You know, Jesus said at one time, or I guess the Pharisees were complaining. They were saying, this is too much noise. You need to shut it down. And Jesus said, if these people were to be quiet, the very stones themselves would begin to, 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 to you know, proclaim. And when we think about how many people were there. So there's a little bit of evidence that maybe it was a pretty significant amount of people. Some 30 years after this event, a, a Roman governor actually conducted a census on the number of lambs that was slain at a Passover meal, right, or at a Passover week. And so the census came out to be about 250,000 lambs that were killed in that Passover week. Now, we know that it was prescribed that there be one lamb for every 10 people. So what that means is that there was something like 2.5 million people in the, in the city of Jerusalem that time, so 30 years after Jesus. Now, I don't know if y'all know this about like church business meetings and things like that, but if everything's going good, nobody shows up. But if there's controversy, if there's trouble, if there's some kind of problem going on, you'll have a packed house. You better believe that with Jesus going around performing miracles and teaching things that were contrary to what the religious leaders were saying, the religious leaders, you know, having this arrest warrant out for Jesus, you know, on site, come and tell us so that we can arrest him. There was plenty of controversy. That probably was one of the best attended Passovers of that generation. And so it may be that there were even more than 2.5 million people there, and a lot of them would have been paying attention to Jesus. A lot of them would have been responding to what was going on at that particular time. 
and we all know how easy it is to kind of jump in and join into something. And so people that had been following Jesus were aware of what was going on. They would have been a part of this, but probably also people that were just at Passover. And they just, you know, sometimes you just happen to be at like the special thing that happens. And you had no idea it was the special thing. You just were there for whatever reason. And, and, and in those kinds of cases, they would have joined in as well. So it would have been a time... Um, of, of a massive, massive crowd watching Jesus come in. Nothing that happened at that particular time uh, would have been a secret. So Jesus entered the city like a king and was received like a king, so it was easy to see why the Pharisees and Sadducees were unwilling to arrest him when he entered the city. Think about, and, and a word that, that you start hearing nowadays in modern times is the optics. You, you hear that sometimes people say, well, the optics of that are bad. It looks bad. They just want to sound smarter. But the optics of that, they're declaring him, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's riding in on a donkey. They're laying down palm leaves, and they're going to come up and arrest him right now? Probably not. was not the right time. They wanted to take him secretly. And if, the, and if it had been God's will, they would have taken him secretly and they would have brought him into the city on chains. That probably would have been the way that they would have wanted to do that. But instead, they have to watch him come in as a king. So the people were ready for Jesus to proclaim that he was the Messiah. But instead, he looked around the temple and quietly went back to Bethany. So what we know is from some of the other gospels story as well is that he does ride into Jerusalem. He goes to the temple. He looks around, he doesn't even really say much, and, and he leaves. And so they were waiting for him to stand and say that he's the Christ, that he's the Messiah, make that proclamation, something that would have been almost a declaration of war against Rome because they were still thinking of him as a political military leader, but he didn't do that. Instead, he left. And so what we have at this point is that a mass of worshipers, and again, maybe maybe. You know, if even half the people were there, that's half a million people, or I mean a million people, uh, what, what would have been a mass of worshipers in the morning, uh, they would have uh, been made or were ready to be made into a murderous mob by the evening. You know, one of the questions that people always have is how is it that people are receiving him on Sunday and saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and then those very same people on Friday morning are crying out, crucify him. Well, he didn't do what they wanted him to do. He did not come in and say he's the Messiah. He did not come in and start fighting against the Romans. He didn't do what they wanted him to do. And so they were ready to do away with him. And so that's what they chose to do with Jesus. Now, Jesus never sent mixed signals. From the beginning, he had uh, been in the business of eternally saving souls, not building earthly kingdoms. At no point did he ever tell anybody... I'm going to go defeat the Romans. At no point did he ever say, well, I'm going to become a king and, and, and rule this land. He never said anything like that. So people didn't have any reason to believe that other than their misunderstanding of what Scripture was saying. And so Jesus is not at fault for people misunderstanding who he is and what he planned to do. Now, what we do know is this. He will be there for us in our darkest times, but he will be as he is not how we wish him to be. There are times in our lives when we need Jesus. We need him all the time, but there's times where we know we need Jesus. In those times, he'll be there. He's made that promise, and that is crystal clear in Scripture that he will always be there for us. But when you get Jesus, you get Jesus. You don't get what you want. You don't get the way that you want him to be. You get the true Jesus, the one that's revealed in Scripture, not the one that we might invent in our heads. 
Because that was happening in the first century, and I promise you, even to this day, it's happening. People think things about Jesus that aren't true. And so that's not the Jesus that's going to show up for you in your time of need. The Jesus that's going to come is the true Jesus. He is who he is, just as the Lord. So the, the next big portion, pretty much from verse 20 to the, to the end of the chapter, this constitutes the end of Jesus' public ministry. This records all the things that John chooses to record that Jesus did that week that was public. Now, obviously, his crucifixion was public, but that's not part of what his ministry was. That was where they were carrying him, not where he was going. Um, but this, this rest of it is Jesus' public ministry. Um, and, and so it's, it's worth saying that the Passover was the largest feast of the year, and people from all over the world were likely in attendance. Um, so that, that's an important thing, is, is to know that people from all over were there. It was, a, it was an epicenter at that particular moment. People from a lot of places had gathered for the Passover. It was, you, you were, it was considered your religious duty, if you could, to, to attend the Passover. Any Jewish male that lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem was required to come into the city for Passover, and the others were encouraged. So the people further out were encouraged, and everybody tried to do it at least once. And so, like I say, there were people that were there because things were controversial that year, and there were probably people that were there because this was the one time that they could ma manage the trip, whether it be you know health or finances or whatever, this was the one time they could get there, and so you would have had a massive crowd there. Now, among those that were present were a group of Greeks that wanted to see Jesus. Now, we don't have to think of these as strictly, you know, Greek people from Greece, but this would be more or less Gentiles, um, people that were not Romans, uh, but that were probably, you know, they would have looked a lot like Europeans. They, they, would, have, they would have been the types of people that we call either God-fearers. Um, so some of these people were people that believed in God, believed in the Word of God, but had not become Jews, not ritualistically with circumcision and sacrifices and all those things. And there were others who were proselytes, those that truly had been converted um, to Judaism. They practiced Judaism in every way that they could. Um, th that would have been probably who that was, maybe a mixture of that, but those would have been the Greeks that were there. And so they approached Philip. He's a man with a Greek name. Philip is a Greek name. Uh, and Philip, in turn, approaches Andrew, who is another man with a Greek name. And then it's Andrew and Philip um, who are willing to bring the matter before Jesus, but it's unlikely that they uh, knew how Jesus would respond. Um, surely by this point, they didn't think that Jesus would just reject people like that but they might have thought that there would be some issue. So possibly the disciples expected uh, Jesus to refuse the Greeks because he was there for the Jews. Um, but instead, Jesus was troubled because this brought him face to face with his hour. Now we've talked about Jesus' hours, and my hour has not yet come. Um, now his hour is here. Because what Jesus sees in these Greeks wanting to come and listen to him is the fact that God is now drawing all people to him. It's no longer just the Jews, but God is drawing all people. And so Jesus takes this as, as, as God's revelation that his hour is here. So Jesus understands, at least at this point, obviously I think he understood before, but at this point it became very real that this was his hour. This was his time. Jesus knew that it was time for him to be glorified which is to say that he knew it was time for him to be crucified. And so he does, he does know this, and he does indicate this to people. Now, obviously, the, those closest to him were trying very hard not to believe that. He was saying it as plain as day, but they were trying not to believe that. They were trying to believe anything else that's possible. 
And we know what this, what, how that is. We know exactly how that is. When someone is telling us bad news that we really, really don't want to hear, we want to hear any other possible news, anything else that we can hear. And once we kind of hear that news, we start trying to find ways to either make it untrue or, not, or make it not as bad as it really, really was. And so we know that. We know that feeling, and that's definitely how some of those closest to him would have felt. So Jesus says that it's only natural for death to bring forth life. That's the example of the grain that falls into the ground. It dies, but it is fruitful. And he even tells the disciples that they will need to be willing to make the same kind of sacrifice. So that's what he's talking about when he says the one that loves his life in this earth will lose it, but the one that hates his life will gain it. And so love and hate... We, we use those words one way, but in the Bible, sometimes they're used a different way. And so right there, he's describing a choice. Love means to preserve it at all costs, and hate means to let it go if need be. And so that's what that means in that particular context. So Jesus is saying, if we preserve our lives at all costs, then we're going to lose our life. The, the physical life is all we'll ever have. But if we are willing to let go of our lives and serve for, in service of Jesus Christ, then we will gain not only that life, but we will gain eternal life as well. That's the picture. And so that's what Jesus was willing to do. He was willing to lay down his life. And, and what, what he said before and what he'll say again is that, that I'm going to lay my life down, but I'll take it back up again. And so what Jesus is, Jesus is not saying every Christian is going to have to die a martyr's death. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that every Christian has to be willing to give or to spend their life in order to serve God. So those that cling to this present life will have nothing in eternity, but those willing to spend this life for God will receive eternal life as a reward. So it may seem, there's some, Jesus kind of asked some questions here. It may seem that, that, that he is having some doubts or seeking a different path. But what we are seeing is his way of stating that he came to this earth to die for the many. So in verse 27 it says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. So Jesus did not just pray, Lord, save me from this hour at that moment. There's, there's, a, there's a prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane that does sound like that. But at this point he's not saying, and he's certainly not having doubts in front of all these folks. But what he's saying is, I could ask, but that's why I came here. That's why I'm here. So that's not something I'm going to ask. I'm not going to ask for God to save me from the very reason that I came to the earth in the first place. So he's not having doubts. His prayer is, Lord, you know, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. And his prayer is immediately answered from heaven for the benefit of those around Jesus, even though uh, they would not understand it until later. So the voice that came from heaven um, said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So God is lifting up his name through the life and the ministry and the work of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says that he must be lifted up, um, he, he's making it plain what kind of death that he's going to die. It's still confusing to his listeners because they did not believe that the Messiah would be put to death. They were not wrong, but they just couldn't open their minds. So they said the, the, the Messiah doesn't go away. The Messiah is eternal. The Messiah lasts. The Christ lasts. And so that definitely is true. But what they couldn't do is open their minds to the fact that there may be something else, that there may be something else that God is going to do besides just be forever. So yes, Jesus is eternal, but yes, Jesus was going to die for our sins. 
That's why when I talk to you about prophecy, especially New Testament or unfulfilled prophecy, we have to consider it like we consider a mountain range. You can see the peaks of the mountain, but you can't see what's in between. And that's where the Jews failed. They saw the peaks and they did not allow, they did not believe that God would do anything else in between. So we see the peaks that, that we see now. And I don't know many Christians that don't say, you know, we're living in the end times. A lot of us probably believe that at that time, at this time. But the, the, the thing is, we don't know what's in between those. We know what may be next. We may know what's going to happen. We may know that there's going to be a great tribulation and, and that that's going to be, you know, revealed what God is doing. But we don't know what happens in between because God didn't necessarily tell us everything, but he told us enough. And so just like the Jews were missing Jesus because they weren't being understanding about what God was doing in that time, we need to be sure that we're not missing something that God's doing in this time, looking for what God's going to do in the next time. So we've got to be humble like that when we look at the Word of God. So all along, Jesus had been telling them that He would only be with them for a little while, and yet they still didn't understand. Again, he goes into this thing, you know, you have light for a little while. Walk in the light while you can so that the darkness doesn't overtake you so that you might become sons of the light. He's telling them this is the time. There is a limited amount of time and this is the time. Now we all believe that we have plenty of time until it begins to run out and then we realize that there is much to do with what is left. How many of us felt that this morning getting ready for church? You know, you might have woke up early. You might have said, you know what? I'm feeling good. It's 6 o'clock. It's 7 o'clock. Whatever time y'all wake up, you would have said, I've got plenty of time to get ready, to get dressed, to eat breakfast. You know, this is the morning I'm going to be ready for church on time. And then, whatever time you decided to get here, whether you decided to come here for Sunday school at 10 or whether you decided to come here for worship at 11, it's five minutes, and now you've got a speed, and you're still not right, completely dressed, and you don't have everything ready, you don't have everything in your hands. It just happens that way. We all think we've got plenty of time until it runs out, and then we find out that there's a whole lot to do. As believers, let me tell you, we don't have plenty of time. There is an amount of time that God has given us we have time to share the gospel, but we don't have time to waste time. We don't have time to, to, to squabble. We don't have time to, to, to go off and do our own thing. We have time to do what God has left us to do, and we cannot add more to that. So as Jesus is finishing up his public ministry, we see that there are still people waiting for one more sign or proof of his identity. It's as though he had done so many signs before them, they were still waiting for something else. How could they still be waiting for something else? But I tell you that there will always be people sitting on the fence, and John points out that this too was prophesied long ago by Isaiah. There will always be people waiting for one more proof, one more evidence, one more thing. So... If we had any testimony in court that was repeated four times by four different eyewitnesses, that'd be an open and shut case. We would know that that was true. Well, we have the testimony of Jesus Christ, his whole life, recorded by four different witnesses, and yet people still don't believe it. So, what do we need? Think about the story of the rich man and Lazarus, a different Lazarus. You know, the rich man was asking Abraham, will you just send Lazarus back? to the world to tell my brothers what had happened because he couldn't go and he didn't even assume that he could go. And Abraham told him at that point, they have the, they have the law, they have the prophets. They're not going to believe if one comes back from the dead and tells them. And we have had one come back from the dead and people still don't believe. And so I tell you that people are always going to be sitting on the fence and waiting. 
But God has some ready to hear it. We don't know who those are. So we have to be very diligent to tell everyone about Jesus. Now, there were some people in the very highest of places who did believe in Jesus. But they were afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue. What, is that, what would that mean for them? What would that mean? So if you're not a member of a synagogue, you cannot be a member of Sanhedrin, you cannot be considered a, a Pharisee or a Sadducee, um, it was going to be bad socially, it was going to be bad religiously, it was just going to be bad at all. Any of those titles, any of those things that they would have had that would have been you know, a thing of pride for them, they'd have lost all of that. And so they didn't make it public. Now, we know that some eventually did. So we, we, we know Nicodemus, and we know Joseph of Arimathea eventually made their faith public because they were instrumental in the burial of Jesus. And so we know that some of these highest-placed leaders did eventually make it public, and we hope that many others did, but there were certainly some that absolutely did not want to because, and, and John makes it pretty plain, you know, they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Let that never be said of us. We certainly don't want that on our headstones. In these last, uh, the last seven verses of this chapter, they record the final plea that Jesus made in public to those who had been following his ministry from afar. And so when we read this, he says, whoever believes in me, starting in verse 44, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So he stands in, in some central place with crowds listening, and he makes this final plea for people to believe in him. He's not going to do another sign for them. He's not going to work some miracle so that they can now believe. He has done his work. He is making this final appeal to them so that they would believe. Now, he who believes in the Son believed also in the Father and walks in light. That's what Jesus says. If you believe in God, you believe in the Father, and you walk in light. He makes that pretty plain. Those who reject the words of Jesus will be judged by those very words on the last day. You see, there's a problem with truth. And the problem with truth is that it doesn't change. And so if it's true now, it will be true in the last days. And so if we accept it and believe it and live by it now, then we will rejoice in the last days. But if we reject it, we will be rejected by that same truth in the last days. Those that believe will have eternal life from the Father according to this command. There is still time for people to believe in Jesus. But we know that that time is short and the consequences of the wrong choice are everlasting. And so the question, what will you do with Jesus? Will you believe him or will you reject him? I think it kind of gets real tidy as we look at this last story. So this actually goes back to the beginning of the chapter. The dinner that Mary and Martha and Lazarus threw for uh, Jesus probably happened on the Tuesday 
probably happened after Jesus had concluded his public ministry. So at this time, he's quiet. He's, he's not talking to the public. He's talking to his disciples. As we're going to go through chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, Jesus is talking to his disciples for all of that time. And it's private, and it's not for the rest of the world to hear. It is just for those that believe. And so this dinner may have kind of started that process out. So we're going to look at it in that context. Um, so this would not have been a public feast, but rather a small gathering of friends and disciples. At this particular point, it talks about Lazarus being, you know, reclining at the table, Martha serving just as we would expect her to do, um, and, and Mary doing something very, very significant. Um, I believe that everybody present at this dinner would have known that Jesus' hour was here. Whatever that meant and, and whatever they thought it meant, um, th- I think they would have felt like, at this point, things are the way they are with the religious leaders. Things are changing. We know his hour is here. And, and so I think that they knew that this was some kind of end to what was going on. Mary and Martha and Lazarus would have known that this might be the last time Jesus stayed with them. The disciples might have known that this was, you know, the end was coming and they weren't going to have Jesus with them very much longer. Now, Mary chooses to take this opportunity to anoint Jesus with expensive perfume in anticipation of his burial. Now, this, um, this was her choice. This is what she wanted to do. I'm going to talk about this perfume in just a minute, but it would have been quite valuable. This was an act of love and sacrifice, but Judas sees it as a waste. So we can't, we can't separate what Mary did from what Judas saw, so we were thinking about that. So he talks about selling the perfume and giving to the poor, but he was just trying to enrich himself. Now, John... I don't think that John is a real big fan of Judas. I don't think that John likes Judas. Remember, John would really only refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He didn't really call out his name, uh, his own name, but he definitely did not like Judas. And, you know, most people don't like traitors. Now, so here's what's interesting. So Judas says that we could have taken this perfume and sold it for 300 denarii. Now, a denarii was a Roman coin uh, worth, you know, in modern U.S. equivalents, about 17 cent. Now, it was a day's wage at that time, so 17 cent would have went a lot longer. So think about how 17 cent would have went maybe in 1940 or 1950, not necessarily, you know, 17 cent now, which um, I believe that if you put the gas nozzle in your vehicle and squeeze and let go, you'd spend more than 17 cents now. But in, in, in those days, it would have had a lot more purchasing power. So in modern currency, Judas said that the perfume would cost, or could be sold for about $51. 51 U.S. dollars would have been about the equivalence there. But he would be selling Jesus' whereabouts for the equivalence of $25 in a short time. So the 30 pieces of silver would have been worth about 25 U.S. dollars. Obviously, it would have spent further and went further, but that's what his price was. And that would have been the value of it. Um, so this perfume was joint, drawn from, uh, was the oil drawn from an East Indian plant um, and was considered a gift for a king. So at this particular time, that, po- that, that perfume or that nard that she would have had would have had to travel along what we know of as the Silk Road that went from China through, you know, basically India and, and Arabia. It would have passed through Jerusalem. So she would have purchased it at great price or it would have been passed down to her. This would have been very, very expensive. Uh, and In fact, one historian actually records one king giving another king this as the gift, this same nard, the same stuff from the same plant as a gift to another king, as kind of like a peace token or a, a, a token of appreciation. This would have been very valuable. It would have been considered a, a very precious gift to give. Now, 
Judas talks about the poor. We should give to the poor. And Jesus points out that there will always be poor. In no way is Jesus belittling ministry to the poor or saying that it's not important. He's just saying that at this moment, there is a greater need. So the poor will always be with the church, and the church can minister to the poor. But this was the one time that a believer would find Jesus in need and be able to minister to him. This is like the one time. Jesus was in command. Jesus was in control. But this one time, this was something that he did need. What she was doing was preparing his body for burial. And so this was something that needed to be done, and she was doing it. And so when we think about it, Mary was doing what we could not do. We could not find Jesus in meat and, and, and meet that need, but she did. And so it's a very important thing to remember that. Mary represents all who follow Jesus, sacrificing everything for his service. Now, everything is a lot like the word all, and you don't need a word study for me to tell you that everything and all means everything. It means all things. There's not things that we can hold on to in our lives. There's not little parts of our heart or little parts of our mind that we can hang on to and still belong to Jesus. He takes it all. He takes it all. The perfume that Mary would have opened and put on Jesus would without a doubt have been the most valuable thing she had ever possessed. It might have been the most valuable thing that anybody in Bethany possessed. But she willingly gave it. And she would have given more. She would have given much more. The other Gospels tells us that she anointed his head, she anointed his feet. Even John says the whole room, the whole house was filled with the fragrance of this perfume. She was thorough, she was careful. And she knew that she was doing a service to Jesus. She was making a sacrifice and she was doing it in love. Judas represents everyone who comes to Jesus expecting to get stuff. Judas came expecting something. Probably he was attracted to the idea of a political military messiah. Probably he was thinking, hey, this is going to be a great time for me to get on a, you know, a council of a king or something like that. And, and there's money in that. Well, he followed along. John points out that he was stealing from the, the, from the community purse the whole time around. And Jesus would have known that. Jesus wasn't blind to that, but he didn't call him out on it. Um, John knew it afterwards, at least if not before. But Judas came to Jesus seeing what he could get. And so maybe he thought he could get something from the sale of this perfume, so he said it. That's what John thinks. But also, Judas was going to get something from the sale of Jesus' location. And so we know that Judas was for that. He was for getting stuff. And, and when it was time to, you know, cash in his chips and leave, that was what the 30 pieces of silver was all about. So the gifts Jesus has for us are not always earthly, but we must be willing to lose everything else to hang on to him. Judas wanted things. God's not always going to give you things. He, he won't always. He won't always give you things like help. Sometimes you're going to be healthy, sometimes you're not. He's not always going to give you things like money. Sometimes you're going to be wealthy, sometimes you're not. He's not always going to give you the stuff that you think you need or want in this world. But the prizes, the rewards that He does have for us are eternal. Those are the things that we should look for. Only faith like this, hanging on to Jesus, losing everything else, only faith like this will save us. So to wrap this up, not everyone comes, uh, comes to Jesus and not everyone who comes to Him comes for the right reasons. There are many Judases who come to Jesus for stuff and there's no reward in them. There's no reward for them. So people come for the health, the wealth, the, the prosperity gospel stuff. People come for that kind of thing. People come for other things too. 
Think about how many people used to. I don't think it's so much anymore, but think about how many people used to come to church because they didn't want other people to talk about them. You know, that would be they preferred the glory of man over the glory of God. So think about the number of people that came because somebody forced them to or they felt forced to. Or think about the number of people that would come just to, you know, network or to, to, to you know, meet a future spouse or for whatever reason. Guys, you can't say that you didn't go to a church at least once in your life because there was a pretty girl in the youth group that you wanted to meet. We probably all did that at least once. And the reality is that's not the reason to come to Jesus. Hopefully we've changed our reasons by this point, but that's the thing. We come to Jesus not for stuff. We come to Jesus to give ourselves away. We come to Jesus to give our lives away. Believe in Jesus because He is the Savior. And you will see that there are greater gifts than you could ever imagine waiting for you. What Jesus has to offer is not worldly. What Jesus has to offer is eternal. Now as we think about what our situation currently is. We do live in a world now that is very, very focused on the here and now. We live in this impatient sort of society. What we have to realize is that Jesus isn't about that life. And so you may be used to getting things, you know, delivered next day. You may be used to getting things, you know, instantly, but that's not the way that God works. We pray. We are patient. We wait. We seek Him. And He fulfills our deepest needs. Sometimes the needs we didn't even know we had. So trust in Him. Look to Him as Savior. And be willing to give up anything that He requires for our service to Him. That's the kind of faith that saves us. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much again for this time. And we think about that example that Mary left. Where she sacrificed something of great value for Jesus. That alone was, was not the, the moving thing, Lord. We know it was her heart. It was the fact that she was willing to give that or anything else that she had to show her love and to be of service to Jesus. I pray that you build that very same heart in us. Let us be willing to let go of everything so that we can hold on only to you. That is what we need. That's the faith that will get us through. As we look at this world today, we see nothing but trouble. So why would we want any part in it? Why would we want any stock in it? Truly, we only want you. Only our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.